This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President-elect of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this first of three podcasts on the theme of peace, Barbara and David reflect on how Dr. Montessori came to view her educational philosophy as having a key role to play in peacemaking, and how her method actively fosters a collaborative, tolerant, environmentally conscious mindset in young children. Thank you. We're, um, we're really excited about this topic, and we think uh, that it's very core to Uh, Maria Montessori's own philosophy and goals in life. Um, Barbara, can you start us off by describing in what way war and its consequences affected Maria uh, personally during her her lifetime? Montessori lived across the 20th century and experienced not only the impact of the First World War, but also what the rise of fascism has meant for European communities. She had the experience of fascism firsthand because initially she negotiated with Mussolini about the possibility of all schools in Italy being influenced by her ideas of education. And Mussolini agreed to these principles until he realized that she promoted internationalism, that she promoted the idea that the child is a citizen of the world. Very quickly, he forbidden any Montessori practices within the Italian um, educational system, and it has resulted in Montessori leaving Italy and not to return for many, many years to come because she could not bear the idea that her ideas would not be available to children in her homeland. She found Holland as her main country of life um, and then continued to travel extensively. From Italy, she moved to Spain only to witness the Spanish Civil War and the horrors of it where different people from the same nation fought for what they considered to be their rise. And of course, the rise of Franco's fascist regime has resulted again in Montessori moving on back to Holland. At the outbreak of Second World War, she found herself again um, at, on the verge of another major decision in her life at the beginning of the Second World War, because she was in India when Second World War was declared, and because she was an Italian national, and so was her son, they were interned for a period of time. Um, And in fact, um, 
Maria was only released from the internship for Montessori's 70th birthday as a special gift to her. And they continued to work in um, India for the period of six years, not returning to Europe until 1946. But um, all these have influenced her work and formulated her ideas, not only about education and what it should be in promoting peaceful coexistence, but also um, about the continued impact of cosmic education and what it really means in context of Montessori philosophy and how it influences particularly the curriculum of the primary age children. Yeah, that's, uh, she said, well, like many people in the first part of the 20th century, so much direct experience of strife and war. Um, it's interesting about Mussolini because it must have taken some powerful determination to stand up against that. I know that he had these um, kind of colonial ambitions where he he wanted to, um, to, to conquer parts of Africa. And so he was trying to mobilize the youth of Italy, wasn't he? To, and this was part of that, to set up a fascist youth group. Yes. And in order to be able to have that powerful voice with the use of Italy, he needed to promote nationalism and the sense of what it means to be Italian and, and the importance of being Italian. It ran totally contrary to Montessori's idea of the child spiritually con spiritual connection with the country in which they are born, but actually... Um, also emotional connection with the world community of all children. She believed passionately that um, her approach to education should be available to all children, irrespective of their um, culture, of their religion, of the place where they were born. Sure. It must have been so a bit frightening and, and risky for her to, to stand up that way against I mean, this was in the mid-30s, wasn't it? So um, It was yeah. um, in the beginning of the 30s, yes. Yeah. And um, she certainly, yes, it must have taken lots of courage yes. to be <laughs> able to um, denounce um, his regime. And, you know, during um, the 30s in Germany, her books were born and her education was forbidden too. So it... It moved from Italy uh, to Germany because she was seen as a revolutionary, somebody who would not uh, support um, the Nazi regime. I, I, I read somewhere that her father was actually a soldier before he became a civil servant. Um, so she had some experience of that even in her own childhood. Yes, and um, I, I wonder if that... Um, experience in a way contributed towards her sense of the child's need for freedom. Because I fundamentally, I think that she was a nonconformist. Mm -hmm. I think that the fact that she wanted to become a um, first a scientist or engineer, and then she becoming a medical doctor, um, proved that she always had very strong ideas about who she was and how she wanted to contribute to the world. 
When did she start to talk about peace explicitly as opposed to um, child development in the context of um, child It was following her experiences with Mussolini that she uh, began to formulate the idea about um, science of peace. And it was in the 1932 speech which she made at the International Peace Club in Geneva and then also at the Montessori Congress in Nice that she talked about um, her views that peace does not mean termination of a war, but a triumph of justice and love against amongst men. So I think that that idea of promoting the positive within the human spirit was very much in her thoughts as she began to campaign for peace. And did she feel that by, you know, from her early work with children, she could see that she was meeting children's needs. She was meeting their developmental needs, giving them the, the choice and the, and the flexibility and the freedom to pursue their own, uh, their own learning and to develop a love of learning. Did she feel that that would psychologically, in the populace generally, lead to less adult frustration and aggression? I, I think she believed passionately that the child had within... Um, or children had within them this spontaneous natural capacity to learn and to develop if the conditions are right. And that natural capacity would promote all the positive characteristics of the human being rather than uh, promoting uh, the more negative aspects of our personalities, which are definitely present in all of us. Yes, but does it... Does it come from, I guess there's two ways of looking at it, does it come from the removal of obstacles and frustrations for the child? Is, is that natural flourishing of the child's consciousness um, leading to a more peaceful state in their adult life? Or is it more specifically bringing out the positive elements of human nature? Or maybe both. I mean, maybe it's a bit uh. of both. Um, I don't know. I don't really have the answer for that. But thinking about this question in context of what we know about children in the beginning of the 21st century, I think that um, we need to acknowledge all full range of the children's emotions. But we need to give them tools how to control some of those emotions or how to, you know, so that whole idea of uh, encouraging positive language and uh, positive responses um, to children's behavior, accepting for who they are, but also giving guidance that some behaviors are not appropriate because they hurt others is very much at the heart of her belief that the children have God the inner capacity to unfold their personality if the environment is right. I always thought that the concept of the absorbent mind is a kind of natural expression of love um, because it trusts and it 
takes from what it finds, which is one of the aspects of, uh, of love, which is, you know, trust is at the heart of it. Um, and that you just accept without question the things that are presented to you as valuable and as worthy and as, um, you know, necessary to your constitution. And I think that this concept of the absorbent mind in itself is just a kind of expression of um, self-fulfillment and peace and, um, you know, in the spiritual sense. I, I think that her recognition of the power of the absorbent mind is a huge gift to everybody who is interested in children because she recognizes the potential uh, within the human spirit and um, acknowledges that the child has got the capacity for self-construction if we help to guide them in a sensitive and respectful manner. And that sensitive and respectful manner in itself includes the acceptance of a huge diversity of uh, personalities and huge diversity of the potential of the child. Um, what I love about encouraging the human potential within the child is that it values the journey of the child irrespective of which path the child takes. So it would value the child who wants to become an artist as well as the child who wants to become a scientist or the child who wants to care for animals or who wants to serve the community as being a mother. You know, we see those um, key characteristics of the children in the nursery so keenly. We see the budding architects um, or the builders. We see the artists. We see the more introverted children who turn to observe and watch. And we accept them all mm -hmm. as for who they are rather than um, whom we would like them to be. And for the adults, the biggest challenge about this is to suppress your aspirations for the child so that the child can unfold their true nature. Yes, it's very hard to do. I think all parents know that that's difficult to avoid projecting your own expectations onto the child. It's one of the hardest things. And, and, you, never, and you never stop. I mean, it's, it's not just, oh, they reach 18 and you stop worrying about it. You know, it's, it's a forever, a forever uh, issue for parents. It is very much mm -hmm. the plight of the parent to uh, moderate uh, the acceptance of the child and your aspirations for them. <laughs> but on the positive side of that, um, this focus on children, just as a, an enterprise of, of that Montessori almost invented or you know brought into twentieth century civilization, this attention to childhood, especially early childhood because it's got universal qualities to it, helps to bring diverse societies together. It's something they all have in common. And um, she must have found in all her travels as she went around the world in her training courses, doing training courses and meeting different cultures and different societies and seeing how they could implement Montessori principles. She must have seen the ways in which, well, here's something we all have in common, a love for and 
you know, uh, attention to uh, the, the value of early childhood in, in human development. And it must have also been hugely gratifying to see that her ideas have got such global resonance, that they have a meaning uh, for whatever culture embraces the principles, because uh, in a way we all recognize in ourselves some of the opportunities that we have missed as children. Yeah. And uh, we all wonder as adults what our life would be had we been accepted for who we were. Yes, and some people spend a lot of part of their life trying to, you know, to reconcile that or maybe correct that in their in their adult comportment to the world. Is there, in your experience, because you've been all over the world yourself, um, are there cultures or societies which have had difficulty with Montessori? In other words, there's the values are too different to at least the formal or official, um, you know, aspirations of, of that society. I think that my observations and my visits have shown me that most of the Montessori community continue to focus on the value of the Montessori learning materials and on the value of um, the prepared environment, and that there is still quite a lot of work to be done on really truly understanding the spiritual aspects of the Montessori approach and truly understanding what it means to foster that um, love and um, unconditional acceptance of the children. Um, and embracing the understanding that we are all interconnected and interrelated. And therefore, my actions, my individual actions, will impact on the community that I live in and the community that is close to my heart. Did, did Montessori um, believe that she saw evidence in her lifetime of the positive effect? of the Montessori method and the Montessori philosophy on the societies where it was taken up? Or was that would that have been too bold um, a claim at that, in, in her own lifetime? I think that we don't see evidence of that in her writing. Um, and I think that this was something that she had time to think about when she was in India because the six years in India gave her an opportunity to be in contact with, in deeper contact with the Indian culture. And uh, she must have been reflecting on her own experiences as a child and the experiences of the communities she came into contact with. But sadly, we don't have enough documentation to really get a sense of what it has meant to her in terms of um, really appreciating the value of her idea about social justice, about solidarity. Um, all these ideas which she promoted in the 1930s when she made her significant speeches about education and peace, um, 
She um, spoke extensively during 1936 and 1937, um, particularly her speeches in Copenhagen in 1937 have been taken as strong evidence of how she imagined that the science of peace will unfold and it, what it will mean for children and for communities. So, for example, she made that very well-known statement that uh, education is, the role of education is to educate for peace. It is the role of politicians to deal with war, but it yeah. is the role of education to deal with peace. But she went further than that. She uh, spoke about the fact that there cannot be peace without social justice. She was very aware of the inequalities in the world. Whilst she has not given us any specific guidance on how to deal with the inequalities, she indicated very strongly that she was aware of them and that we need to do something about them. She also felt that we should have a minister for children, ah, interesting. Um, which is something that, for example, in the UK has happened. Since the implementation of the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, in fact, just recently, a new minister for children has been appointed in England. And very sadly, it seems to be a very derogatory step uh, because the new minister is head of an academy which was responsible for the largest exclusion of children from oh, education. No. <laughs> um, so, whereas the previous uh, ministers were campaigning so strongly for children and their rights, suddenly we have got somebody who doesn't seem to understand the impact of exclusion, something Montessori wouldn't have ever no. condoned because she believed in the potential of each child and in our need to nurture that. Did she explicitly speak about the rights of the child or is that a more modern concept, a sort of post-war concept? Um, she was one of the founder members of UNESCO um, in 19, when she returned from India and she definitely began the work uh, that took more than 50 years to mm -hmm. put together, which looks at the rights of the child. So, yes, she was at the beginning of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and it effectively taken until the end of the 80s for us, for the governments, um, 54 governments um, of the world to sign up to it. Right, right. Well, of course, she was at the beginning of so many things, um, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about the the practice, you know, in the Montessori um, settings. So what would, for example, um, one would want a Montessori child to do if they were facing or witnessing abuse? So just the abuse of another child or perhaps themselves, um, like you said, feeling excluded or actually being excluded and, and so on. What what kind of response would we be looking for in the in the Montessori child? Um, I think that 
if we really observed and really listened to that child, we would see very quickly how disappointed the child was at the way how the child was treated. In cultures where children are used to being heard more, we might even hear the child protesting. But what is most significant is how we as practitioners challenge this abuse from other children or from colleagues, because unfortunately adults can be very biased in their responses to children. And in recent discussions um, through the uh, Black Voices, Met Black Lives Matter movement, we have heard lots of stories of um, people of color feeling marginalized very early on in school, always knowing that their voice is heard in a very different way to the voices of the other children. So it is even today very important that we listen and we challenge and we are not afraid of entering into conversations which may be difficult, mm -hmm. but which the child deserves if we are to be worthy of calling ourselves educators of the young children. Yes, I, I, I relate an anecdote I heard from one of our subscribing schools um, where they were talking about Black Lives Matter and what it was about and how there was a history of slavery. And um, a little boy in the class, uh, a little boy of color who said, um, uh, am I going to be a slave? Now, everybody laughed, which I don't think was the right response. You know, it was cute. But on the other hand, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't the right way to, to respond to that. It was should have been the beginning of a serious conversation about what happened and, you know, um, how it's changed and why it changed and so on. But that, you know, obviously everyone thought it was just adorable, but it wasn't. Um, as you say, it wasn't taken seriously. The teachers didn't use that opportunity to initiate a, a proper conversation. And I think that um, as a, a white educator, I'm sure that um, I have been uh, responsible for some unconscious biases. And I wonder how helpful it would be had uh, uh, I been challenged uh, to think more deeply about the things that come from my mouth when I discuss things with children. And you are absolutely right. We often laugh at uh, the children, that the, the things that children say, and we think they are cute without actually teasing out the real meaning of what the, what the child is saying and what it me, which it can mean to children, because the very young children often take things at face value. Mm -hmm. And uh, so because they are still so egocentric, they apply the information directly to themselves. Yeah. And um, we need to be sensitive to that and we need to be able to reassure them and give them um, a feeling that there is somebody there who is their voice and who is going to campaign on their behalf. Yes, I think that the listening part of being a, a teacher or a Montessori directress is, um, 
isn't emphasized enough. It's that listening that really helps us to facilitate the child's growth and learning. And it, it, the listening has become more challenging as um, we have started to work with younger and younger children because many nursery schools now offer daycare provision and they will take babies and toddlers. Um, and there the listening is of absolutely paramount importance because the children are not able to express themselves through words. They express themselves through her, through their behaviors, through their gestures. And we as educators have to become very mindful of the messages and the signals that they are sending us uh, in order to make the child really feel heard and feel that they belong and that they have got somebody that really deeply caring for them. I often tell the, um, the teachers that we work with that you're, you're really the child's only friend um, <laughs> and that it all comes down to you. I mean, I don't want to threaten them, but to make them feel how important their role is because, you know, the parents love them unconditionally, of course, but they also have expectations and they have a frame of cultural um, contexts in which they're raising the child and they have family pressures and so on. Um, and the only real champion of that child, uh, their existence for themselves, their autonomy and their um, worth as an individual is, is their Montessori teacher. And, um, you know, not to take that role lightly because it's, it's, um, it's ever so important to that child. Yes, I absolutely agree that the of the idea of us being the child's voice, of us being um, uh, the one most important secondary attachment um, is very, very important, and that in fact there will not be another as important person in that child's life. Um, then the nursery school person to whom they attach. And I often wonder how helpful the whole idea of the key person role is, uh, whilst I absolutely appreciate that the key person is very, very important. But this the role has to come the love and the acceptance of that child for who they are and also being a champion of celebrating what that individual child brings to the community and to the family. Because as you say, parents have expectations, they have got preoccupations, they have to think about so many things. Today's lives are very busy. All parents want the best for their children, but sometimes it takes somebody who is not immediately connected with the family to really show the family all the gifts that the child brings to yeah, yeah. them. Yeah. How, how is, uh, going back to this, um, our, our theme of peace, how is dispute resolution between children ha handled in the setting? Um, is there a formal, uh, in your, in your uh, instruction of teachers, is there a formal process or a set of guidelines? Um, 
Well, um, we always encourage a positive conflict resolution, but if you look at the social media and you look at the many Montessori teachers' forums, the uh, question about managing children's behavior keeps coming up over and over again. And it comes up because as adults, we feel that we somehow that the children need to conform to our expectations. I think that the first first step towards positive conflict resolution is to actually recognize that the child has the right to express their views, regardless if they are positive or negative, or if it is joy, anger, frustration. We need to acknowledge it, but as the more able adult, we need to offer tools by which the child learns to modify their behavior or learns to um, accept that frustration is something we all experience, but we don't go around biting or hitting or kicking uh, our friends because for the two-year-old, this is a one defense mechanism. You attack because your sense of self is being undermined. But in fact, it's the role of the sensitive practitioner to help that conflict resolution and to listen to both parties, particularly with the slightly older children. I have often seen that there is somebody who instigates um, the odd behavior and often the child who then implements it gets punished. But in fact, the idea has come from the instigator who eggs and provokes until the child who has got less patience then attacks. So mm. hearing both sides of the story is very, very important. And also verbalizing for the children how they may be feeling and what might be appropriate. But all of that takes huge amount of patience and huge amount of mental energy to always find the right words because very few of us have been parented in this way. Mm, that's true. Our instinct is to lash out, isn't it? And, yeah, or, yeah, you know, right. to be critical or to mm -hmm. speak, to say no very quickly yeah. instead of just holding back to see what actually physically is going to happen. Yes, I think that's right. A lot of us revert to the experiences we had as a child when we're dealing with our own, our own children. And that's true of... Um, people who are working with children professionally as well. Absolutely. Um, you know that today uh, in in the media and society generally talks about a growing intolerance, a growing polar opposition between different camps of beliefs um, with no apparent middle ground, no apparent um, attempt even to to uh, try to find something common that both sides can believe in and build upon. Um, and how are we as Montessorians, how are we preparing children for this increasingly polarized society? 
Um, it is this real sadness that I have observed this change in society. Um, the polarization, the differences have become greater rather than smaller in my life. And for this reason, I really believe that uh, Montessori does offer something special to the child. Uh, if we really understand um, the idea of um, interconnectedness, we will encourage children towards collaboration. We will encourage partnership. We will encourage service to the community rather than promote competitiveness. This is something that parents sometimes find really, really hard to understand, that um, setting one child against another to be better is not actually very helpful to humanity as a whole. We can achieve so much more if we work together and if we share ideas. And I think that is what is at the heart of Montessori's idea for peace education, that we acknowledge that the child needs to develop as an individual, that the child needs to be given the right conditions to be able to recognize their own strengths and their own capacity for justice. Uh, and that the child has the capacity then to change the world. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks again to Barbara Isaacs and David Getman. Um, we'll see you in the next episode for a continued discussion of peace. Peace.